All right, boys and girls, you are listening to the Ben Dominic Podcast, brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this one. And I will hope that you share it with your friends because it's of interest. Uh, today, we have a conversation with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is the author of a new book uh, that is dealing with all of the different you know, uh, challenges that we experience when it comes to a nation of victims. He's someone who has been a very intelligent observer of American dynamics. His previous book, Woke Inc., was something that I found very interesting. And Vivek uh, really guides us through all of the different uh, challenges that we are experiencing in America today in our conversation. Vivek Ramaswamy, coming up next. Vivek, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, yeah. I enjoy our chats. I wanted to uh, obviously congratulate you on the book, uh, which is uh, getting a lot of attention and response. Uh, What made you want to spend so much time looking into America's culture of victimhood? Well, in many ways for me, this was a sequel to Woke Inc., actually. So Woke Inc. was the first book I wrote. And Wokig explored the mystery behind why it was that corporate America embraced a lot of these postmodern narratives, these woke narratives, these these uh, postmodern victimhood narratives. And you know, I explored the hypocrisy of how they were using it to aggregate power, economic and political power included. But at the end of the day, it does take two to tango. And, and the flip side of the problem, which I didn't discuss enough in that book, was why it is that our entire culture, our entire populace often makes this a profitable exercise for institutional elites in corporate America to prey on. And that was something that that wasn't really the subject of my last book. So I think of this one as a sequel. And the reason I wrote it was to explore what it is about the national psyche, the moment we live in today, that creates a hunger for these victimhood narratives that leave us vulnerable to being exploited by them, be that by politicians or be it by companies or be it by other institutions who sell those narratives, but also creative an incentive structure that even rewards victimhood. And the case I make is that victimhood has become the American national identity. It is the new national identity of Americans to see themselves as victims. But my call to action in the book is to say that our path out runs through, uh, you know, uh, runs through forgiveness first, but then back the path back towards excellence of reviving a shared pursuit of excellence, the unapologetic pursuit of excellence as the heart of what it means to be American. So that's in a nutshell, the 50,000 foot thesis of the book. So one of the aspects of this that I'm curious about from your perspective is how much of the uh, dynamic of victimhood is based on real actual complaints about the American experience. And I'll give you, you know, one particular example, you know, right now we have in America uh, a, a vast overabundance of uh, people who, in the wake of the pandemic, are not returning to work. They have uh, essentially uh, either retired early or they're leaning on government largesse or they've made other choices in their lives uh, that essentially has left Americans. You know, if you go to virtually any city, you'll see the help wanted signs everywhere. Um, there's just a, a real shortage when it comes to people going back into the workforce. 
Uh, and a lot of those people will will basically say, why should I make this choice to go back in and work um, if, you know, this largesse is something that is coming my way. And if I get so little for the dollar, thanks to inflation and, and otherwise, they'll essentially advance a victimhood narrative uh, about coming out of this pandemic. What would you say to them about kind of what they get wrong about this and why a pursuit of excellence would really demand that they get back into the workforce? Sure. So, so I think that it's a great question. I mean, to answer your first question, which is how much of this is a response to justified grievance versus how much of this is, is a figment of imagination created to justify one's own behavior, I think it's about 50-50. And the counterintuitive part about the book, though, is the case I make is that regardless of whether you have a legitimate grievance or whether your grievance was actually just a made-up one to justify your existing behavior, either way, the right answer to both is still not viewing either your perceived hardship or your actual hardship as victimhood, but rather to find a way through regardless. So, so that, that's, that's the core thesis of the book is the counterintuitive part of it is, in many cases, grievances are legitimate. And I think that, that applies to my chapter on conservative victimhood. I think it applies to a lot of the narratives even relating to black victimhood that I treat in the book. Are there good reasons for these narratives of victimhood that, that may even be justified in fact? Sure there are, but that doesn't mean that the path through it for, for both you as an individual and us as a people isn't to still put that behind us and still you know, get back on the path towards excellence. The question you're asking is the other half of that. The second part of what you asked is the other half of that, which is actually the different kind of victimhood that arises from one's status as an incumbent. So here the, the version of the story is that you start as an underdog, you then actually become an incumbent. Once you become an incumbent, you have the sense of entitlement, the sense of even sloth and laziness that then set in the expectation that your status as an incumbent will last forever. But then that, that creates a new kind of culture, and this is what we're seeing in the workforce, I think, today, is a new culture of laziness in our country. No doubt government policy played a role in that. But one of the interesting, interesting things about laziness is it then becomes a habit, because even when some of those government policies rolled back, you didn't actually see people wanting to return to the workforce. They became habituated to their prior style of life. Now they have less money coming in. That's when the victimhood narrative then comes in to say that, okay, actually, my staying home isn't just about my sloth or my laziness anymore or about the incentives that the government gave me. It's about, and you would hear this from the likes of, say, Doreen Ford, who was one of the leaders mm -hmm. of the so-called anti-work movement, who I quote in the book, saying that, no, 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 this is about the grand fight against the oppression of capitalism, that this is a fight against the colonialism of capitalism. And as I say in the book, victimhood fits laziness like a glove. That's what gives it staying power, not just admitting that it was about sloth or even following incentives that the government created for you. But once you wrap it around and douse it in not only moral, uh, moral sanctimony, but even moral superiority, that's what gives this breed of laziness, the victimhood doused breeze of laz laziness, the staying power, the kind of staying power that it's already had and I think it's going to have in the American culture. You're just a cog in the machine of a colonialist system, and I will gladly take your taxpaying payer dollars uh, via government transfer uh, in order I, so that I can stay home and play video games. <laughs> That's exactly. essentially what you're describing. And, there. And, and just one observation I do want to make, and you know, I think it's important to put pressure on audience, any audience's complacency here, and, and make mm -hmm. you know, make any audience at least think a little bit about about looking in the mirror in one's own party, I say this as a conservative myself, is when you think about the policy that was passed in late 2020 of government aid, one of the big COVID stimulus packages, where Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris 
said they would not vote in favor of the package if it did not contain a minimum of $2,000 rather than $1,600 in the package. They just weren't going to be in, period. Well, that, that's the storyline that you might expect if you're looking to make a conservative critique about how liberals actually fuel this culture of entitlement by handing out government money. And, you know, it's legal to bribe your citizens as long as you're using the government's money to do it. It's like Rome's bread and circuses. The, uh, the, the government handouts are effectively the bread. And as I argue in the book, the identity politics is the circus. Okay, so be it. Here comes the twist is that the other two people who also said they wouldn't support the bill or sign the bill unless it contained $2,000 rather than $1,600 were Josh Hawley and Donald Trump. Mm. And yes. so I don't think this issue is uniquely, at least solely at the feet of one political party. This has become a part of our broader national culture of entitlement, victimhood, and the attendant feature of laziness. But at the end mm -hmm. of the day, you know, I think that if we're able to see this in ways that transcend partisan boundaries, as I believe the problem does, I also believe the solution can too. A few years ago, when I was writing about uh, one of the policy proposals that had been put forward by reform-minded conservatives, uh, I said that the, the concern that I had about it was that uh, it could be framed as basically identity politics for white people, that it could basically be said, you know, if, if there's going to be welfare, at least make the people look a lot more like me. Um, mm -hmm. And I feel like that's a very dangerous path to go down because... Uh, once you start down it in a very you know aggressive way, you're just swinging back and forth between different kinds of of welfare style promises uh, directed at people. So how do we get off of that? How do we get away from that path, uh, at least from a from a policy making perspective, uh, and get back to the idea that you shouldn't just be sending money towards people who look like you, or in this case, look like your voters. Yeah, look, I do think that we're in this victimhood Olympics right now, this oppression Olympics, where the woke left started with these narratives of the invisible strings of oppression that ultimately uh, that, that ultimately crush the people of color or minority communities or what they call their disempowered communities. But the conservative response, or at least partially a, a fringe of the conservative response, has been to say, oh, yeah, well, you guys you know, think you're oppressed, we're even more oppressed. And we end up in this, in this victimhood oppression Olympics in which there is no gold medalist. America is the sole loser in the end. Now, how do we find our way out of it? I think, I think that part of this is, is a leadership vacuum, both in, our, in the political spheres of our lives as well as in the private spheres of our lives. I think there, there's a political opportunity for somebody who can wake up and see it, in the Republican Party in particular, not to wallow in victimhood, not to respond to the claims of victimhood on the other side by asserting even greater claims of victimhood in response, but instead to actually be the one major political party in this country that is built around the pursuit of excellence rather than around the grievance tales that they're, that they're telling in response. I'm not super optimistic about that. I don't, I'm, I'm not very optimistic about our, our body politic and our politics generally as the way that we can drive the kind of cultural change we need in our country. I do see an opportunity, a greater opportunity, at least in the private sector, including in the market. That's what I do spending my day job now, uh, you know, building a company whose name rhymes in some ways with that of the book. The company's name is called Strive. Its motto is, is uh, you know, built on excellence. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that there's also a lot of consumers who are hungry for this message. A lot of people who own shares in America's public companies who want to deliver a message to these companies that they should hire people based on merit rather than on race or sex or politics or other political or social considerations. And the use of shareholder power to bring that voice into the boardroom, I think, is something that's quite powerful, too. It's part of what you saw with the Elon Musk Twitter saga, whether or not that plays out. 
it was a path of using shareholder power to drive change in corporate America, which then has a trickle-down effect to our culture. In some ways, using a very, very different approach, that's what I'm aiming to do with Strive. But at the end of the day, I think that there's a, there's a leadership vacuum, both in the public and private sector. I'm much more optimistic about leaders having an ability to drive positive cultural change through the private sector than through the public sector, which is why I've placed my mm -hmm. chips accordingly. But the point of the book was to still lay, 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 you know, throw the gauntlet for what the philosophical objective was in the first place, which is shedding these victimhood narratives and identities and embracing a shared identity around the pursuit of excellence instead. How do you make the distinction when it comes to these culture war battles between actually fighting them and just whining about losing? Uh, because that seems to basically be interpreted as the same thing nowadays on the part of a lot of different, you know, uh, uh, leaders within the culture war space. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easily interpreted uh, by a bystander or someone on the other side to claim that all you're doing is, 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 is uh, you know, asserting your own tail rather than serving up a solution. You know, so, so I'll give you, I understand the question, though. So I'll give you kind of what I think of as a litmus test. You know, a good litmus test would be whether your proposed course of action is one that your opponent could equally avail himself of. If that's the case, I think that you're actually aiming to solve the problem by delivering a solution that is one that transcends the boundaries or the fault lines of whatever culture war issue of the day might be on, on deck, right? So at the end of the day, if you believe that the right solution is actually going to have greater racial representation of a different kind included in an affirmative action program because you have a greater claim to victimhood, that's not a generalizable solution to the person who's on the other side. That counts as you just embracing your own victimhood narrative and playing in the oppression Olympics. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're calling for a solution that ultimately, irrespective of what your identity is, irrespective of the color of your skin, irrespective of where you might rank on that hierarchy system, to call for a shared pursuit of an alternative that you could avail yourself of regardless of what your identity was, that's something that I think it moves beyond playing the oppression Olympics and moves towards what I think could be a more constructive solution. In a certain way for the philosophers you know, amongst us, it, it's, it's not that different than John Rawls's theory of justice or, or, or a thought experiment that he offered in his famous his seminal text, The Theory of Justice, where he talked about the veil of ignorance, that, that the just way to design a society is the way it would have been designed by a bunch of people who sat behind the veil of ignorance, not knowing which position they would actually occupy in the real world on the other side. That actually provided the North Star for a lot of 20th century liberalism. There's a lot of issues I have with John Rawls and his philosophy, some of which I take up in this book. I actually have a title in this book. A chapter in this book is entitled A Theory of Duty. It's a play on John Rawls's A Theory of Justice. But one of the things he gets right is that's, I think, a pretty good litmus test for whether or not your engagement in a particular cultural or political struggle was actually one that was oriented towards a shared national solution or a shared national moment of progress rather than one that involved the tug of war that, that took the size of a given pie as given and just was arguing for your greater slice of it. Um, the relationship, obviously, on the right between corporate America and the conservative movement has changed pretty dramatically in the last several years. Uh, and a lot of culture war concerns have been raised in response to the kind of developments that you outlined in your prior book. Uh, and one of the things that has uh, become kind of a, a thing that I hear, not just from politicians or policymakers, but from voters now as well, is basically, why are we doing all these good things for business 
if they hate us or they hate my values or they hate, you know, the things that I want to teach my children, if they don't have the same values as me, essentially, they're saying, uh, then why are we giving them the, the benefits of policies, you know, through, uh, you know, either tax policy, regulatory policy, any other kind of benefits that come from the state or the federal, federal level? And a lot of, of legislators and uh, policymakers have openly talked about rolling those back. We've seen, you know, what's gone on with uh, Florida and Disney, for instance. Uh, but they also talk about it, of course, very much within the big tech space. Talk to me a little bit about what's going on there, whether that's uh, an appropriate response from your perspective, um, and how that type of approach uh, is reflected through the whole victimhood development. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I hear a lot of that these days. You put your finger on it pretty well, which is, well, why are we going to support them if they're going to start behaving this way? And, and I think it's the wrong framing. I, I think it misses the point. It, it was right up to a certain point. Why are we giving all of these businesses government-created benefits, that'd be a good place to stop. Just put your question mark right there, <laughs> rather than if they're going to actually, if they're actually going to uh, not represent our values, well, then that just gets back into the tug-of-war victimhood narratives of claiming that, okay, I'm only going to support you if you support me. The principled question to ask is, why are why these state-created benefits for those businesses in the first place? What was the rationale behind Section 230? Uh, a, a federal provision of preemption that specifically allowed private companies and incentivized private companies to do what government could not do directly by way of censoring constitutionally protected content on the internet. Let's just take the Florida example, actually. The Disney example is really interesting because everyone knows, you know, who was following the news that what Ron DeSantis did was to roll back certain tax benefits that Disney enjoyed in the state of Florida. What got less fanfare was an aspect of that story that I found more interesting, which is that another one of the benefits that got rolled back for Disney was its exemption from a political anti-discrimination statute that Florida had actually passed for any, any basically owner of, of an online property. You know, Disney Plus, et cetera, mm. counts in that description. Where Florida adopted a statute that said that, you know, for social media companies and certain internet properties and owners of internet properties, Disney would have been included in that because of their internet properties. You cannot engage in political discrimination. However, before that statute got passed and put into law, there was effectively a Disney exemption baked in. The Disney exemption said that except if you happen to be operating a theme park more than 150 acres within this region of the state. It's like a Disney exception effectively <laughs> codified into that otherwise political anti-discrimination statute that got a whole lot of fanfare in the state of Florida. So the question that everyone else was focused on later was, of course, when Disney you know, engaged on its transgender education campaign across the country and, and spoke out against the Parental Rights and Education Act, which was renamed and falsely dubbed the Don't Say Gay Bill. What DeSantis did was he rolled back a lot of Disney's benefits, the tax benefit, but he rolled back this one as well. But this is a perfect case in point for why we shouldn't be asking the question of, well, why should Disney enjoy those special benefits if they're not going to behave the way we want them to behave. Just, just stop the question right in the middle and just say, why did Disney have those special corporate benefits in the first place? Why did Section 230 exist in the first place? Period. Not if they're going to use it to censor conservatives, but just on the principle of it, what was the rationale? And I think that this is where you know the conservative, uh, the, the conservative, uh, let's just say, bromance with big business in the prior decades got, ought to have been equally nausea-inducing and vomit-inducing as the actions that corporate America has since taken in betraying conservative values, when in fact this should have been about a principled relationship between government and the governed, 
between government and the private sector in the first place where the two weren't so intermingled as they were. It goes back to, the, you know, I think some of the same ignominies we inherited in the back of the 2008 financial crisis and the government bailouts, by the way, under a Republican administration. There's mm -hmm. a friendly relationship between Republicans and big business. Why is it that the public has to bail out risk takers on the downside when they did not share at all in the upside? And, you know, that rhymes with a lot of what a lot of people on Occupy Wall Street said. I'm not a member of the Occupy Wall Street movement, but I believe in taking every, you know, the best of every argument seriously. And I think that the critique of the bailouts were valid. And so at the end of the day, uh, to bring it back, I am a little frustrated, if you can't tell, by a lot of the conservative response that involves, well, if I have been wronged in a way that, in a way that you know, hits me at home, then I'm going to take up the principled concern. But why it was that you weren't taking up the principled concern even in absence of you being the one who happened to have been wronged? Because guess what? Everyone in our country at this point lives in a moment where they think they've been wronged. Very few people remember the principles that they ought that they care to advance, even if they hadn't been the ones who were allegedly wronged by violation of that principle. Does that make mm -hmm. sense to you a little bit, Ben? Yes. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a very good way of, of putting it. Um, another uh, big tech related question that, that, is, that is sort of adjacent to this. And I'll use just an example that happened in the wake of January 6th. You saw the targeting of uh, the uh, social media platform Parler by a lot of people who claimed that the uh, that the riot on January 6th had been planned there. Now, as it turned out, you know, a lot of the planning uh, for this actually took place on Facebook. And when you look at sort of, you know, people, uh, you know, going after places, for instance, uh, you know, various forums online uh, that dox a lot of people or include lots of violent threats, you know, they'll, they'll target them and try to take them down. And yet that's the sort of thing that goes on on Twitter every day. And it's one of these situations where there just seems to be a kind of uneven standard. And that if, if essentially it's an unsympathetic source, um, whether that's, you know, potentially, you know, rioters or whether it's, uh, you know, uh, people who, you know, oh yes, you know, they, they, uh, we, we shouldn't dox people, but except for this person who deserves it because they disagree with me, that seems to be something that's becoming a more and more frequent thing that's happening where, where people seem to be, you know, getting punished or able to survive on the internet, not so much because of their actual behavior, uh, but whether or not the the blob of of you know the combination of media, big tech, and the like view them as being sympathetic or not. This is something I've heard many people continue continuously like bring up and complain about uh, in in various ways. I wonder if there's sort of an overall solution that you favor to help make sure that we don't go down this road where essentially you're able to function online, you're able to keep your website up, you're able to you know, participate in, uh, in these various social media networks if you are a sympathetic figure and if you're you know, a jerk or if you're someone who just holds, you know, let's say, out of the mainstream political views, uh, then you can't. Yeah, so I hope that's not where we get. And you know, I've, been, I've been a vocal critic of the asymmetric standards applied by large social media platforms, for example, I still prefer to adjudicate them through principles rather than through grievance. And, and so one mm -hmm. of the arguments that, uh, you know, I helped pioneer in this space, actually, uh, you know, I give most credit to my co-author on a number of these pieces, who is Jed Rubenfeld and uh, professor of mine at Yale Law School, former yes. professor of mine. You know, what we've argued repeatedly, including earlier this year in the pages of the Wall Street Journal and starting in January 2021 in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, and in an argument that was further developed in my last book, Woke Inc., is that government actors cannot use private companies to do through the back door 
what government itself could not do through the front door under the Constitution, which is to censor constitutionally protected speech. And, you know, this is a whole separate discussion. We can, you know, cover it if you want. You're probably familiar with some of the arguments that I and others have made on this front. But at the end of the day, that's a principled response to say that if it's state action in disguise, then the Constitution still applies. And that is absolutely what is happening today, beyond any doubt. The fact that the government is using the private company to take down what the government could not take down directly, be that Twitter, be that Facebook. We've seen patterns of that repeatedly over the last 18 months. That is chilling. And the good news is, though, there's good Supreme Court precedents, both with respect to Fourth Amendment cases revolving, uh, re- resolving, revolving around the war on drugs, where railroads were immunized by the government to be able to randomly search and seize belongings of their passengers and their workers in ways the government couldn't have done, but government immunized a railroad company to do it. It's effectively what, effectively what Section 230 does to the, to the social media companies. That's what this statute did to the railroads in the war on drugs. Supreme Court said not so fast. You can't immunize a private company and thereby incentivize them and induce them to do what the government couldn't do directly. There's a case called Bantam Books where there was a there was a Pennsylvania bookstore owner that wanted to sell a book that a prosecutor didn't like. The prosecutor threatened him with prosecution. He then took it down. The government says no. The Supreme Court says no. That is still state action in disguise. I know I'm going fast, but I can go into you know a lot of these directions. But those are principled, constitutionally fleshed out arguments for why government can't use private power to do what the government couldn't do directly. And I think that that's a big part of what's responsible for the asymmetric application of those standards is the lurking hand of government. It's not the invisible hand of of the free market. It is the invisible fist of government that's guiding that asymmetry, the party in power. Now, that I think, you know, am I biased because, you know, I helped advance and and create a lot of these arguments? Yeah, maybe I am. I I, I view it the other way around. I created these arguments because I think that that's the right way to approach the problem. Mm -hmm. And they're being adjudicated in the courts today, I think, for others who have taken up some of these arguments and are running them with them in cases. I don't think, I don't, I don't see that as a victimhood claim. I see that as a principled claim that whether you're on the left or the right, Turn the tables, you wouldn't want a Republican administration using a social media company to take down content on the Internet that the opposition party would have wanted to advance. That's what it means to live in the beginning of a totalitarian society. Mm-hmm. That's different from making a claim that says that, well, why should we treat these companies so favorably if yeah. they don't like us? Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just a claim of a different kind. One is principled. The other is emotive. I prefer the principled approach and the emotive approach, I think, gets us back to the grievance Olympics, the oppression Olympics, where there is, as I said, no gold medalist, but a country and a nation that lose in the end. So let's go out on this. I want to use a recent example of uh, something that I made me immediately think of your book um, on the evening of the Arizona gubernatorial primary. This amazing thing sort of happened where, uh, you know, the, the way that it worked was basically these the initial votes were coming in and you had, uh, you know, sort of uh, one candidate narrowly uh, winning and you had a, the other candidate, uh, the one who ultimately won, come out and both claim victory and combine that with an allegation that the election was being stolen in front of people's eyes. And it just was amazing to me because it was one of these things where, you know, wait a minute, you're, you're making you're making both arguments at once. It's like, basically, if I lose then it was rigged, and uh, and even though all my all the other people I wanted to win won, you know it that the whole election you know was was rigged, and we have to throw it out. But if I win, then you know it's clear, and we've and we have absolutely beaten back the the people who were doing the rigging. It was so it was so simultaneous and amazing uh, that it made me immediately think of your book. How should we prepare ourselves as 
as political observers, as citizens, as voters, for the simple fact that this type of thing is probably going to happen not infrequently during these upcoming midterms. I am hopeful that the more people avail themselves of these pathetic arguments, uh, the less effective that they are in persuading anyone. So, so that's the note of optimism, is that once it becomes, once it becomes spread so far, it becomes trite. It's not even original anymore, such that even the person who's on the receiving end of that message understands that it lands on an already relatively dulled ear to those kinds of arguments. So I hope, ironically, that's where we're probably heading because this has become so pervasive in our election culture. It's more becoming of a playground dispute in elementary school than it is of the way we sort out who, who holds the keys to power in the world's greatest democratic Republican form of self-government. But I, I do think that this is just a symptom, right? We're not going to fix this problem by setting out some new rule for the road about how people accept election results. I think it's far more interesting as a symptom of this deeper cultural cancer where we view any hardship or any obstacle or any loss that we face as somebody else's, somebody else's form of oppression over ourselves. And whether that's on the left or increasingly on the right as well, I think that is fundamentally an un-American way of dealing with hardship. I think the American way is to recognize that a hardship isn't the same thing as victimhood. At the end of the day, you get your turn two years later, fight at it, and at the end of the day, make your difference that way. I just think, you know, even if you take from a conservative perspective, I think it makes for good politics. I think it makes for good political strategy. I mean, if you, if you have a thought experiment, right? I mean, let's, let's say the day Donald Trump left office, the thing he said was... <laughs> You know, I don't like everything that happened and I have my doubts about a lot of it, but you know what? I'm going to come back and win four years from now. And at the end of the day, I'm going to pass the torch on to the next guy so that we're going to be able to come back and beat him in four years. Man, I think that would put aside the principal discussions. I think that would have actually been far more galvanizing, would put him in a far better front runner position today than the position he is in because of having embraced the, the mm -hmm. narrative of, of victimhood and grievance that came from, from the election being stolen from him. At the end of the day, nobody really likes a sore loser in the end. And I don't care whether that sore loser is Nancy Pelosi, who refuses to seat a lawfully elected Republican congressman from Iowa. But there's sore losers, whether it's Stacey Abrams, refusing to accept the result of the last election in Georgia while still proclaiming the mantle of being a great defender of democracy, even as, even as she raises money on that lie and runs for executive office in Georgia again. I think that this is definitely a bigger problem the victimhood complex more broadly on the left than it is on the right, but it doesn't matter. It's, mm -hmm. it's evident on both ends of the spectrum. And I hope that this is a political opportunity for one party or the other. I'm more hopeful for the conservative party, the Republican party in this country to be the one that embraces it, to say that actually we're not gonna, we're gonna stop playing the tug of war over victimhood Olympics and instead actually become the one party that represents actually unapologetic pursuit of greatness and excellence. I think that Another reason I'm hopeful is that's such an obvious opportunity that I think people are hungry for that message that even if it wasn't the principles that drove you, you know, I, I hope it's the principles that drive, that drive many of us, but even if it's not the principles, just the political calculus alone creates that an opportunity that's hiding in plain sight when literally everyone has gone in the other direction, making the victimhood stolen election arguments that are so prevalent now that literally nobody even is in a position to take them seriously anyway. The political opportunity rests in going in the other direction. Vivek, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today, and best of luck with your book. Thank you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. 
So let me give you my perspective on what's going on with the uh, uh, Biden administration today as it relates to immigration. Obviously, this is a situation that has been very much in the public eye and uh, conversation uh, thanks to the actions of Ron DeSantis and uh, Greg Abbott over the past couple of weeks, uh, sending migrants to uh, places that uh, they are not particularly welcome, uh, that also uh, obviously try to LARP as being, you know, uh, blue, blue state, blue city, uh, you know, uh, migrant heavy uh, sanctuary cities, uh, or, you know, however you want to describe them. Um, obviously, when it came to Martha's Vineyard, this was one that took over the airwaves uh, and uh, the conversation with, you know, 50 people. 50 people is not a lot. 50 people is, you know, an hour at Eagle Pass, Texas. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, the kind of presence that would make any real difference. And yet, when it comes to Martha's Vineyard, they are apparently unacceptable. I'm furious about this. I think it's terrible. I think it's terrible to use people as pawns in a political game. But I also think it's terrible that all of these places are, you know, uh, pretending to be welcoming when it comes to uh, external migrants in a way that they simply are not. Look, we as a nation ought to have a policy when it comes to immigration that is welcoming, that says if you, you know, have... If you abide by the rules, you abide by laws, and you come through the various immigrant entry points, that's a good thing, and we welcome you. And if you don't, we don't. That's something that I think is is just a basic, you know, uh, approach to the way that we ought to treat immigration policy in America that makes rational sense. Unfortunately, in our current political dynamic, that is not the way that anyone is treated. It's not the way that the issue is treated. It's not the way that anyone seems to approach uh, the idea of immigration. Instead, everyone is just used as a pawn, either by the right or the left. That has to end. I'm Ben Dominic. You've been listening to the Ben Dominic Podcast. I hope you will return and listen to more as we dive back into the fray. Mm-hmm.